0: G'day, welcome to the City Reach Family of Churches YouTube channel. You know, we know that uh, online resources are no substitute for, you know, live preaching in your own local church. But we pray that these messages will really bless you spiritually. If you wanna find out more about CityReach and our churches, you can go to cityreach.com.au. Now we hope you enjoy this message. Well, Despair and dark moments in life are not something that followers of Christ are immunized against. Just because you're a follower of Jesus doesn't mean you won't pass through the valley of the shadow of death at some point. In fact, if you were to do a study, let me just put that down, of biblical characters, you will find that many of them struggled with dark moments. For example, Moses felt overwhelmed having to lead the people of Israel. Elijah, after his great uh, victory at Mount Carmel, felt so low that he asked God to take his life. And even the Lord Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane sweat drops of blood as he pondered what was about to occur. And I share this this evening to set some of your minds at ease because in the church we haven't often done a good job of caring for those people who struggle with depression. Often we add to their burden by giving them simplistic solutions to complex problems And I want you to know that that's the last thing that I want to do this evening. If you're struggling with depression, then you need to get some help. And one of the ways you can do that is you can speak to one of our counselors here at the church or go to your GP and and seek their advice. However, one of the great promises that we do find in the Bible that Jesus gave to his followers is he promised them joy. Before he went to the cross, Jesus said to his followers these words. He said, I have spoken these things to you so that my joy may be in you and so that your joy may be full. So Jesus promises us as his followers to give us joy and to give us such a level of joy that it would fill us up. So Jesus promised us a joy-filled life. Now while I do believe that there is some overlap between joy and happiness in the Bible the joy that Jesus promises is greater than just momentary happiness. You know happiness can be defined as an emotion that we feel when we're going through pleasant circumstances. You know I feel the happiness in my life the happiest in my life when the sun is shining when I have a vanilla latte in my hand. When the Brisbane Broncos are on the top of the NRL table, when the mighty Maroons are are squashing the blues into the ground, none of you know what that's about, but coming to Adelaide soon is the state of origin. Get your ticket today. I've got mine. That's when I feel my happiest. And there's nothing wrong with happiness. Life is filled with happy moments and we should thank God for them. But what Jesus promised to give us is something greater than just mere happiness. Jesus promised joy, abiding joy, even in difficult circumstances. So how do you live this joy-filled life? How do you appropriate this promise that Jesus gave you, if you're a follower of Jesus, that you can have joy? Well, there was once a man who became a Christian as an adult, And as soon as he became a Christian, he became full-on about serving God. And then persecution became his constant companion. He was misunderstood, misrepresented, and maligned. And on top of all that, he suffered from a physical ailment that he called his thorn in the flesh. By now, if you go to church, you probably know that I'm talking about the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was an early follower of Jesus who wrote most of the New Testament. And over in 2 Corinthians, his second letter to the Corinthian church, he spells out some of the things that he went through. He says that he went through constant beatings, that he was shipwrecked. He spent a night and a day in the open sea. It says he was at some point naked in the country. This is pretty bad. And even though the things he went through were enough for several people, As his life went on, it didn't get any easier for him. It actually got much, much worse so that by the end of his life in the book of Acts, he finds himself under house arrest in Rome. But it was while he was under house arrest in Rome that God inspired him to write some of the most remarkable things. And these things were collected. These letters that he wrote were collected and the church recognized them as having authority and being from God himself. And one of those letters was his letter to the church at Philippi. And that's what we're going to be studying on Sunday evenings, is we're going to be studying for the next eight weeks, Paul's letter to the Philippians. So if you haven't got your Bibles or iPhones open yet, open them up to Philippians chapter 1. And I love, I've got to tell you, I love Paul's letter to the Philippians. It contains some of my most favorite verses, Philippians 1.21, who knows it? For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Good. Philippians 3, verse 7. But I consider all things loss for the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. What a great verse. Or in Philippians 2, you have that great kenosis passage where Jesus empties himself and becomes a servant and is obedient to death, even death on a cross. But then it says, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee in heaven and earth should bow to the glory of God the Father. What fantastic verses are in this book. But the most remarkable thing about this book is actually not just the individual verses that you'll find in the book, but actually the main theme of the letter. You see, the main theme of this letter is... Good. Is Joy. Joy. Good. Wake up a bit. All right. Good. Is Joy. Do you love that artwork right there? I asked Emma, my daughter, to paint a picture, because she's a good painter for our series, and this is her artwork. If you want to get more of her artwork, just go to emmadilemma at Instagram, and you can check out all the rest of her artwork. Shameless plug right there for Emma's artwork. And what you'll find in the book of Uh, Philippians is the word joy is mentioned a whopping 19 times in just four chapters. And this is remarkable, as I said, considering this man suffered unbelievable suffering and his freedom is being restricted under house arrest. And yet in spite of these things, he doesn't complain, which is what I'd probably do, or he doesn't write to the Philippians and say, can you guys bake a cake and put some things in it so I can break free out of jail? No, he doesn't write that. He just writes to them about his great joy. And you see, what I think Philippians gives us is it gives us the secret. Everyone loves a secret. Shh. The secret. The secret of Christian joy. And do you know what the secret to Christian joy is? You better lean in close if you want to hear the secret. The secret to Christian joy is found in another word that is actually repeated often in the book of Philippians. And it is the word mind. It is repeated 10 times. And if you add to that the word think, which is repeated five times, and on top of that the word remember, which is repeated once, you have 16, oh, that's not really repeated, is it? Mentioned once, you have 16 references in just four chapters to a Christian's mind. So I think Paul here is giving us the secret to joy. The secret to joy is not found in having working out all your circumstances or controlling your circumstances. The secret to Christian joy is what attitude you adopt in your circumstances. The secret to Christian joy is not what happens to you, but actually how you respond to your circumstances. How do I write it up there? The secret to Christian joy is found in your attitude. That's right, isn't it? The Christ- secret to Christian joy is found in your attitude. So as we study the book of Philippians together, as we study these next four, over these next eight weeks, these next four chapters, what I'm hoping and praying for you is, yes, I'm praying for some of you because I know you're in difficult circumstances that God might alleviate your suffering and I'll leave your circumstances. But the greater prayer that I would have for you is that God would help you to see how you can respond in your circumstances, the attitude that you are to adopt in the difficult circumstance that you find yourself in. So why don't I just pray for you right now, that exact thing. Let's stand up. Let me pray for you. Let me pray for you. Father, I just come before you. And Lord, I don't know exactly the circumstances that all the people in this room are going through, but there would be different battles and trials and struggles that we're all going through at this moment. And Lord, I do pray that you would alleviate some of the suffering and change the circumstances. Lord, I just ask that you would sovereignly move in people's lives. But also a greater prayer that I pray, Lord, is that in the midst of their circumstances, Lord, you would show them the attitude that they are to adopt And you would give them the joy, the abiding joy in the midst of their circumstances so that they can approach life with joy. A joy that cannot be taken from them. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So get open your Bibles if you haven't already. Get them open. And let's get into the letter. So look down in your Bibles. In Philippians 1, verse 1, Paul begins the letter the typical way you would write a letter in the first century. The typical way we write a letter is we say, dear such and such. We address our uh, reader. And then at the end of our letter, we sign it off with our name. We say, yours sincerely, Timon Benson. But the Apostle Paul, he follows the convention of the time. And the convention of the time was to introduce yourself, give your credentials, and then address your readers. So so verse one, it reads, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, that's their credentials, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Paul planted the church at Philippi on his second missionary journey. It's recorded for us in Acts 16. Now, I have a bit of a map up here that just outlines the second missionary journey. Paul went on three missionary journeys or three missionary adventures. And on his second missionary journey, he always left from Antioch because that was his sending church. On his second missionary journey, he went up through the interior of Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. He went up through there. He went to Troas. And when he got to Troas, he had this vision of a Macedonian man saying, come over to us. And so he came over to Macedonia, and then he came into Neopolis, and then he came into Philippi. And while in Philippi, God did some amazing things. We're going to talk about those things tonight. God did some amazing things, and the church at Philippi was planted. But then, Paul, look down in your Bibles after introducing himself and giving them a greeting in verse 2. In verse 3... He then also follows the convention of the time, which was to write a thanksgiving to the gods. But Paul here, he Christianizes it. Look down in verse three, and here we have the first attitude that we are to have in difficult circumstances. Look at what Paul says. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy. So Paul prays with joy, and why does he pray with joy? Because he prays a prayer of thankfulness. See, the first key to actually having joy in difficult circumstances is to adopt an attitude of gratitude. Notice here how thankfulness and joy are linked together, they're linked together. Adopt an attitude of gratitude. Now, also what I want you to observe there in verse 3, you might want to underline this in your Bible. He says, I thank my God. Now, most commentators that you'll read will say that Paul here is borrowing language from the Psalms. That when various Psalmists, when you read various Psalmists and the struggles that they have, they will often cry out to God. They will say, my Lord, my God. I'll cry out and use that sort of personal language. And this phrase here in verse 3 is unique in Paul. He often just says, I thank God. But here in Philippians, he says, I thank my God. Notice he is clinging to God in the midst of his difficult circumstances. You know, difficult circumstances can either make you press into God, or they can either, with some people, sadly, difficult circumstances is the very thing that drives them away from God. For some people I've noticed that when they go through difficult circumstances, it makes them press into God and they cry out to God and they cling to God, my God. But for others, it becomes the very thing that actually leads them away from God. Um, Before I was the senior pastor here, I was a pastor at this place called Subiaco Church of Christ and my senior pastor there was a guy by the name of Graham Johnson. And uh, when I left to come here in April 2010, 10 years ago now, um, a couple months after I left, I called up Graham, and I said, how you doing, mate? And he, we talked, and then he didn't sound right. And I said to Graham, is everything all right? And he said, I've been to the doctor, and I found out I have mesothelioma, I have lung cancer, and it doesn't look good. And within about 10 months, Graham had passed into the presence of God. Way too early. Tragic. But the amazing thing was watching his wife, Tracy, deal with that suffering and that difficulty. His wife, Tracy, instead of letting that suffering and difficulty drive her away from God, it became became the very thing that drove her to God. She started reading her Bible. She started going to BSF. She started listening to sermons. She started reading Christian books. And now she is a woman with whom the rivers run deep. See, let your difficult situations and circumstances, don't let them drive you away from God. Let them drive you to God so that you'll cling to him. I thank my God. But what Paul does here is he shows us or he gives us two reasons why gratefulness or thankfulness will lead to joy. Two reasons why gratefulness or thankfulness will lead to joy. And the first reason why thankfulness or gratefulness leads to joy is because it will help you focus on the goodness of God in your circumstances. Uh, The word thank in the original language is the word Eucharisto, Eucharisto. We have communion down here tonight and the communion is often called the Eucharist, the Thanksgiving meal. And part of the word Eucharisto is grace. Karis is grace and so Eucharisto means to remember grace. And so what it means to thank God is it means that we look for the fingerprints of God's grace in our lives. And this is important because You know, oftentimes we can have a thousand blessings and yet one thing going wrong, and we focus on the one thing going wrong, then the thousand blessings. Let me do an experiment with you here tonight. Don't think about elephants. Don't think about elephants. Don't think about elephants. What are all of you thinking about? Elephants. Elephants. Because your mind can only be focused on one thing at a time, and thankfulness helps lead to joy because it helps focus our mind on the goodness of God, of how good God has been to us. And notice what, how Paul sees the goodness of God in his situation. Look down in your Bibles again. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because, this is why he's thankful, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul is so thankful to God because of the partnership that he had with the Philippians in the gospel. Now, what did that partnership involve? Well, undoubtedly, it probably involved the Philippian church praying for Paul, but I think it involved more than that. Now, to work this out, you have to go back to the book of Acts. As I said, the church at Philippi was founded in Acts chapter 16. In Acts chapter 17, Paul moved on from Philippi. He went to Thessalonica. Then he went to Athens. And then in Acts 18, we read this. Look at this. This is really interesting. It says, after this, Paul left Athens and he went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife, Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath, and he tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. You see, because Paul had to earn a living, he had to work six days of the week, So he could only do ministry on the Sabbath, where he would go into the synagogue, as it says there in verse 4, and try to persuade the Jews and the Greeks. But then we read this, look in verse 5 up on the screen. It's really interesting. It says, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Macedonia is where Philippi was from, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that, the Christ was Jesus. So when Timothy and when Silas came and joined him, then Paul was able to give himself full-time to the work. He was able to give up his tent making and give himself full-time to the work. Now why was this? Well I think we find this out at the end of the book of Philippians in the parting comments in the book of Philippians. So just turn over your Bibles or look up on the screen in Philippians 4 verse 14. Paul says, as he's concluding his letter, he says to the Philippians, it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. So you see, now we know why when Timothy and Silas came from Macedonia, Paul was able to give himself fully to the work, it's because when they came, they brought a gift, a financial gift from the Philippians, enabling Paul to give himself full time to gospel work. Now Paul says, it's not like I'm just in it for the money. Notice what he says in verse 17 of chapter 4. He says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I'm not about money, Paul says. But because of you supplying my needs, I'm now able to be more fruitful in the work of the gospel. And this is awesome to think about. My fruitfulness, Philippians, is actually your fruitfulness. You know, we haven't done a good job in uh, the Christian church at really celebrating what I call gospel patrons. Gospel patrons. You see, whenever you see like a mighty movement of God or a particular preacher, or a particular person being used by God, what you'll see often behind them is these patrons who are supporting the work. I have a picture here of William Tyndale. Uh, This is a picture of William Tyndale. William Tyndale was just a remarkable man who lived in the 1500s. He studied Latin and Greek and Hebrew, and his heart's desire was to translate the Bible into his native tongue of English. But he had two problems. Firstly, translating the Bible into English was illegal at the time because the Bible, everyone knows that the Bible should be read in Latin, (laughs) so it was illegal. And secondly, he didn't have enough money to go full-time and do that full-time work of translation. But this is where Humphrey Monmouth comes in. Humphrey Monmouth, it's a big, big, big name. (laughs) Humphrey Monmouth was a merchant, and Humphrey Monmouth supported Tyndale and paid so that he could spend his time translating the Bible into English. And then Humphrey Monmouth, you'll read this on Wikipedia, had a giant fleet of ships, and he sent the Bible out in that giant sh- uh, fleet of ships, and it went. the English Bible went all throughout the English Empire. The Bible that you're holding in your hands, about 90% of it, still owes its translation to William Tyndale. We would never have this English Bible if it wasn't for William Tyndale. But if it also wasn't for Henry Humphrey Monmouth, praise God for gospel patrons for people who support the work of the ministry. I'm looking out at a group of people who could be gospel patrons. And I know that many of you are. Many of you are. Many of you give faithfully to the work of the ministry, but let me tell you, in my ministry, when I left to go to Dallas Theological Seminary many, many years ago, there was a young guy in our church His name was Mark Denner, and he had just started work, first job. And he said to me just one Sunday before I left to go to Dallas Seminary, he said, "Uh, me and my wife, they were just newly married, want to support you through seminary. Just first job. Some of you just got a a first job. This was his first job. And so all the way throughout seminary, he supported us $200 a month while we went through seminary. It's pretty powerful to think about. Any fruitfulness that comes about in my ministry is also his fruitfulness because of his partnership in the gospel with me. What an amazing thing, what an amazing opportunity that you have Don't waste your your money on things that just don't last eternally. Use your resources for the glory of God. Use your resources and start young. Start young. Start giving to God's work young so that you'll start that habit of sowing into the kingdom of God. And the beautiful thing about gospel partnership is because of gospel partnership, it It leads to just depth of relationship. Turn back to chapter 1 again, and Paul says in verse 7, he talks about his affection, his affection for the Philippians. He says, "'It's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus.'" One of the biggest blessings is to have partners in ministry. Just a couple weeks ago, um, Steve Rose uh, visited me on Wednesday. And Steve has been a faithful friend and partner in my ministry. And he just came to just encourage me and pray for me. It was such a beautiful thing. He, he came into my office and there's a picture of Tegan and I when we were 19 years old. And he just simply, this is, he simply said, I love that picture of you and Tegan. Such a picture of, of possibility and who, you know, and 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 you know, little did those young couple at 19 know what God was going to bring along their path. And he prayed for me. And it was just, I'm so thankful for someone like that. You see, thankfulness will help you to trace the goodness of God in your life, even in difficult circumstances. Paul was so thankful for the Philippians and their partnership in the gospel. But also, also thankfulness will help you to see how God is working despite your circumstances. Paul is really confident that God is still working. Look in verse 6. He says, I am sure of this. I'm sure. I'm, I'm completely convinced of this. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Paul is, remember, let's, let's remember who Paul was. I've got a little bit of a list here. Let's remember who Paul was. Paul was used greatly by God before Antioch. Do we have that slide, brother? rightly by God before Antioch. He received two direct revelations from God. After being sent out by the church at Antioch, he planted many churches and he reached thousands of people. He would have been literally the most effective gospel worker in the world at that time. But yet, Paul actually was arrested at the end of Acts for no apparent reason. He spent two years being bumped around from prison to prison. When you read the book of Acts, he was shipwrecked on his way to Rome. And now he's under house arrest, limiting his freedom. Paul could have thought, God, what is going on? You don't seem to be at work. But thankfulness, it helped him remember that God was working despite his circumstances. Because when he prayed, he remembered how God had worked in the Philippians and how had God worked in the Philippians? What did he remember? Well, when you read Acts 16, you will read three amazing stories about how God worked in the church of Philippi. Paul came into Philippi and he went down by the river to pray. And there was this merchant named Lydia who was down there. And he reasoned with her and spoke to her about the gospel, and the text says that God opened her heart to believe. She would have been one of the most unlikely people to believe because she was from the upper class, the higher class, and God opened her heart to believe. Then we read in Acts 16 that Paul was walking around, and this slave girl with a spirit of divination was bothering Paul, and so Paul cast the spirit out of the slave girl, and she was miraculously delivered. What a powerful thing to happen. And because of that, Paul and Silas, because the the slave girl's owners was not too pleased, Paul and Silas were then put in prison because of that. And what happened when they were in prison? Paul and Silas were singing, they were singing worship songs to God, and an an earthquake came and the prison shook And their chains fell off, and the prison doors opened, and the Philippian jailer was about to kill himself, and Paul said, don't do it. And Paul then went to the Philippian jailer's house. He preached the gospel, and the whole family became Christians. You see, as Paul remembered and thanked God for them, it built his confidence that God would still be at work, even though he couldn't see. How God was working because he remembered how powerfully God had worked in the Philippian church. You know, um, a couple of weeks ago, I took Lockie Hodson out for a cup of coffee. We had a beautiful time, and it was. I was. I was meaning to mentor him and help him and just ask him questions and stuff like that. But I ended up sharing my story of my life and everything like that with him, and. I don't know whether it was good for Lockie, but it was certainly good for me <laughs> as I was sharing with him my story and what God has done and how God had put Tegan and my marriage back together and then God, how God opened up the way for us to go to seminary and then how God called us to come here to City Reach Oakden. As I told him all these things, my faith was built. I don't know about his, but my faith was built as I remembered the way that God had worked. You see, this is the power of gratefulness. Gratefulness will help you remember. Because many of us have this sort of mindset. We have an if-only mindset. We have an if-only mindset. We think, if only I had this, then I would be happy. You know, Tegan and I, we often say, if only we had a personal trainer, a cook, a cleaner, then we would be happy. But this if-only mindset is actually a prison prison. You see, Paul understood God's goal for his life. And we see see this in this prayer that he prays for them at the end of the paragraph. Look in verse nine. He says, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ Jesus, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. You see, Paul knew that God is more interested Paul, Paul knew that God was more interested in His holiness than his momentary happiness. And that is what God is about. He is about working that in your life and in my life. So if you want to have joy in the midst of difficult circumstances, you need to adopt an attitude of gratitude. So let me conclude by giving you three applications for how you can develop an attitude of gratitude. Firstly, make uh, thankfulness or gratitude part of your prayer life. You'll notice in verses three and four that Paul says that he thanks God in all his remembrance of you, and he uses the word in verse four. He says, always, in every prayer of mine for you. So every time he prays, he actually Makes thankfulness a key part of his prayer life, but also secondly, secondly, to develop an attitude of gratitude, find something to thank God for in every circumstance that you face. In every circumstance you face, try, um, find something to thank God for. You know, about ten years ago, I um, did this life skills course, and they said, in, this guy said, in order to develop a positive attitude, whenever you go through something bad, you need to say, firstly, that's good. All right, let's try it together. Ready? That's good. Everyone try it. That's good. good. So when you go through something bad, you say, that's good. good." Then you say, because, and then you try to find a positive out of the negative. All right? So when you encounter a difficult day, you say, That's that's good, because this will produce patience in me. Uh, When you encounter a difficult person, you say? Because this gives me an opportunity to demonstrate love. Fantastic. And you might think that this is psychobabble, but actually in 1 Thessalonians 4, 5, Paul says, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. But lastly, to develop an attitude of gratitude, We need to continually thank God for the cross, for the cross. You know, I wonder if today your joy has dried up. I wonder if there's no joy in your relationship with God. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit. Joy is a result of walking closely with Jesus. And if you walk closely with Jesus, then flowing out of your heart will be the fruit of the Spirit, which is joy. And maybe maybe, like, maybe like, you've strayed from Jesus and you've walked away from Jesus and maybe, maybe tonight you need to come back and you need to come back to the Lord. You need to confess your sin. You need to come and just kneel before the cross and really just say, Lord, fill me with that joy that I once had. You know, I, I think about King David and how King David, he says in Psalm 51, he says to the Lord, Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. The Christian life is not supposed to be miserable, people. It's not. That's not what it's supposed to be about. It's not supposed to be this misery that you just endure. It's supposed to be about joy. So no long faces. Let's smile again. Let's laugh again. It's supposed to be about joy. That's what the Christian life is supposed to be like. And maybe, maybe the joy of your salvation is not there anymore because you've walked away, you've walked away from Jesus. Joy is spelled Jesus, others, yourself. (laughs) Jesus first, others second, yourself last. So you need to come back tonight to Jesus and actually have communion with Jesus and ask him to pour out his joy into your heart. Because the Christian life is supposed to be like a river of living water that's flowing out, a river, river of joy river of joy. So what we're going to do tonight in our service, because I think when we come to church, it should be a time where we don't just experience things cognitively in our minds, but we actually experience God relationally. Like, it's a relationship with God. It's not just this, God is not a concept that I have to study and just get to know as a concept. God is a person who I'm in relationship with. And so what I've, what, I've, what I've got here is I've just got, uh, I've put the cross here and just some bread and some juice. And we're going to sing some worship songs right now and just enter into a time of worship and communion with, with the Lord. And if you feel like it would be helpful to come forward and to kneel at the cross, then why don't you leave your seat and just come forward and kneel down at the cross and just say, Lord, I just come, I come, restore my joy. I've lost my joy, restore my joy, Lord. I'm laying my sin at the foot of the cross and I wanna receive joy. And if you feel led, if you feel led to, like this meal is a remembrance meal. This is where we give thanks and we remember what Christ has done. You can just come up, take a piece of bread Take some juice. And in your own time, as the songs are sung, you can just worship Jesus. I mean, we don't have to stick in rows, all right? We don't have to stick in rows. You mightn't feel comfortable. You're like, some, some of us love singing, but you might actually feel like you need to kneel and just take communion this morning, this evening, and just, and just really have a moment with the Lord, asking Him to restore your joy restore your joy. So musicians, if you want to come forward and uh, stand up together, stand up together. Lord God, we just come and we just come to you this evening and we thank you for the teaching this evening. The Apostle Paul had amazing joy, Lord God. And he was under tremendous pressure and difficult circumstances. And yet he had this amazing reservoir of joy. Just put the lights down for us, Claire, so that we just, I just want us to have this, these moments with the Lord this evening. Oh Lord, I just pray that you would draw near to us and just refresh us. So that we would be a church that ministers out of joy, the joy of knowing you, Lord. Let's sing to the Lord.